Right, so in the book of Ephesians, there's this guy named Paul, and he is writing to this uh, city, these people, this believers, this church in Ephesus, these people whom he loves. He spent three years with them several years ago. Um, now he is imprisoned in Rome, and he will probably soon, within a matter of several years from now, be put to death. And so Paul is writing this church uh, that he loves very much, and he's kind of giving them some thoughts and, and really is trying to break something down about uh, the Scripture and who Jesus is and who we are, and then therefore what we get to participate in. And so as I mentioned last week in the sermon, you have to understand the book of Ephesians kind of in two different parts. The first three chapters are all about our identity. And I'm convinced, church, that our lack of understanding in identity not only affects you as an individual, but it affects your home, it affects how you work, it affects us as a congregation and as a church. And so with that, we must begin to fight for and to deepen our understanding of what it means to be in Christ and in Christ alone. Because if we understand that, as Paul understands it and unveils through the power of the Holy Spirit to this church and to all believers, um, then we become an unstoppable force. We become a building that cannot be shaken. And we become a people that cannot be shaken because we are in a firm foundation, that which is in Christ. And so the first three chapters, we're in the deep in the pool. It is all about doctrine and theology and identity and the person and work of Jesus and in his character and God's character and the power of the Holy Spirit. If you will look at the first 14 verses of the book of Ephesians, you will see that we have God the Father involved in our salvation, that we have God the Son involved in our salvation, and that we have God the Holy Spirit all making sure that salvation is going to happen for God's people. Now, as you will see uh, quickly, if you've not been around what we're going to be talking about today, there is a, a lot of mystery and there is also a lot of tension um, when we talk about some of these deep doctrines as God begins to invade what we think is our identity and what God says is our identity. And so we want to leave room for the tension. We want to leave room for the mystery. A mystery from God is, is not something that we will never know but it's typically something that God reveals inside of moments and segments. And it's going to take all of eternity for God to reveal everything that he is in all of his plans. So we welcome you, uh, those who are wrestling and in tension. So when Paul begins to dive into this letter, notice as we talked about last week, he, he shoots out a quick greeting about who he is. They obviously know him and who he's writing to. Like we typically do that at the bottom from so-and-so, much love, love you dearly, see you soon, Eric Baker. They typically in this, this time of writing would do that at the very beginning. So Paul shoves out who he is, he shoves out who it's, who it's going to, and then in verse 3, as we covered last week, from verse 3 to verse 14, inside of the original language is the longest run-on sentence inside of the Bible. It's 202 words where Paul busts forth into glorious praise and worship. If he'd only been a youth pastor in the 80s and 90s, he would have been doing this with a guitar in his hand around a campfire as singing kumbaya, you know, kumbaya, and then they would have sang something like, Lord, I lift your name on high. Remember that one? 
with all the hand motions. That would have been coming next right after this one, okay? And so this is what happens in Paul. He's writing, and then it's almost like he gets sidetracked in, in praise and in worship while he's sitting in prison. He begins to just cry out these Uh, these magnificent truths about God and what God has done and what God has done through Jesus and how that the Holy Spirit is sealing all of God's will and plans. So we talked last week about when he says this blessed, he means praise be to God our Father. So he begins, he begins praise and worship. This is a song that he is singing to this church who has blessed us, what? In Christ, the most important sentence in all the book of Ephesians, maybe in all of the Bible, is this idea of what it means to be in Christ. Because you are either in Christ or out of Christ. Out of Christ, you receive the wrath of God which you deserved. In Christ, he receives the wrath that you and I deserve. But he he continues here by saying that God has given us every spiritual blessing. Every one of those. He is given to us in something, in Christ, in Christ, and he has already, we have obtained those in a very positional way inside of the throne room of God. And then we we spent most of our time dealing with this idea of what is one of those spiritual blessings, the spiritual blessing of that God has chosen those whom he will save. It says that right here, verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And so we we start seeing these, these words that can often, again, create tension, create mystery. Obviously, in America... The idea of someone choosing me or choosing something for me and me not getting that choice causes a little bit of issue for me. We're kind of engraved uh, or grown up, cut our teeth on uh, a society and culture that is all about your personal freedom. And yet, Paul is worshiping here. He is singing praises to God about this idea that we are chosen, that we are predestined. See, inside of Scripture, as I mentioned last week, except for in Romans chapter 9, which we're going to read some here in just a few minutes of that, so get ready, is that we, we see inside of the Bible, there's not the tension that you and I face, except for in that one chapter. In all of Scripture, the idea of being chosen or predestined always brings with it the idea of comfort and peace and worship of God. Why does Paul break into song here? He says, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is why I'm always dumbfounded when I come across brothers and sisters in Christ who say things like, well, I just don't believe that God chooses people. Or I don't believe in the word or the concept of predestination. Or the idea of God's election. Well, that's really hard to understand, brothers and sisters, because these are not made up by the preacher. These are... In the original language, they were written by these men, inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are biblical truths. There's something to cling to. They're not something to bring a frown to or to bring anger from. There's something to smile about. 
I mean, you should be thinking how humorous, how ridiculous God is in every good way. He is ridiculous that he would do this. And so we're going to dive into more even practicalities of those things here today. So first thing we're going to look at, I'm going to give you kind of two kind of synopsis, sort of kind of 35,000 foot view, and then I'm going to get really good Baptists today. Some of y'all who are type A++++ are going to really enjoy me today because I'm going to give you like four words that begin with E. You like that? And you're going to be able to walk away and go, I've got four words that begin with E. And then you'll put eggs at the bottom and go to Walmart to add to your list, okay? But that's, that's where we're going here today. All right, so this idea of chosen. Inside of the original language, sometimes it's considered to be, the word chose there in Ephesians is where we get the word election, okay? And so you get this, this concept of you've got God choosing an election, this doctrine, this identity. We are the chosen ones. We're the chosen ones. On the other side of that same coin is this idea of, of predestination. And sometimes in, in language and in circles, they can be interchanged and all of those sorts of things. But So when did God choose us? Election is the act of God before the found creation in which he chooses some people to be saved because of his sovereign good pleasure. Election is the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now that's a great little pithy statement, but how do we know this to be true? Well, again, we are under the authority of Scripture. What does the Scripture say? Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. Again, that we should be holy and blameless. He goes on to tell us why in, in verse 5, he does this through Jesus, and Pastor Justin will talk about adoption, this predestined to adoption next week. But he tells us that this is done through Jesus according to the purpose of whose will? His will. And that his there is not you and I, it is God. So inside of our Bibles, if you're writing inside of your scripture there, you should be seeing in the first few chapters, we have in Christ Jesus, we have in verse 3, in Christ, we have in verse 4, us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself, according to the purpose of whose will? His will. His will. So this is the picture that you need to get. Due to God's sovereign election, this electing process, this choosing, this creating for this purpose, this saving did, did not have its, its birth at the, the creation of all things, but literally before the void was ever the void, before the deep was ever the deep. Before a star was ever hung perfectly in the sky, before the earth was put on its proper axis at the perfect degree in order to keep us from either burning up or freezing to death, before any of those things ever happened, when God was simply God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as they're being worshipped by this created order of the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, God 
God planned, he purposed, whom would be saved? Whom would be saved? This happens and is a picture of this taking place before creation that this mirrors and and again illustrates to us that this is solely done by God's grace. By His grace. Pre-creation, God did something. And those of us who have been saved, God chose in that moment, through grace, through mercy, that He was forever going to love and care for you. That's worth worshiping about. God purposed and planned to love and save his people before anything ever happened on the planet. So, what is the, 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 the kind of the basis of this predestination? Where does this come from in God's character? Okay. What is the basis of predestination? What is the basis of God electing you? What is the basis of God choosing you? Well, again, he tells us. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, what's that next line? In love he predestined us. In love he predestined us. God is lavishing upon you his grace, his mercy, his love, his compassion for for his bride long before she was ever even the bride. Long before she was ever even birthed. Long before Adam and Eve, our first parents, were ever created, God did something. He predestined. Don't get hung up on, on that word and looking at the negative, possibly negative side of that, but get hung up on the positive side of that is that God has lavished his love on his people. That predestination is not a bad thing. It is a loving thing for him to do it. This is one of the beauties of this. What is the basis of predestination? Simply God's love. And what do we know about God's love? It's reflective of its character. It's part of who he is. See, God's character has arms and legs to it. It has practice. It has action to it. It has a verb to it. It is, it is not a love that is merely shown through the words, I love you, but no, its love is effectual. And God's love for you was effectual way before you were ever created. That is amazing love. Now we sing these songs about how amazing God's love is. I mean, to think about this idea, this concept that, man, if you are truly in Christ today, that God has loved you in eternity's past, and that God is going to continue to love you into eternity's future, that you have been a lot of things in here. All right? Your wives are all saying, yep, my husband's been a lot of things in here. We've all, every one of us in here have been a lot of things, and yet, brothers and sisters, those of us who have in Christ, there's one thing that we can know for certain, 
If you are in Jesus, no matter if you have been all of those things, one thing that you have never been from God's position is unloved. He has always loved you with a specific love. He has a general love for all people. He has a specific, effectual love for his children. And not everyone is his children. This is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yet, it causes some tension among us. There's kind of two ways of of primarily looking at this, and like any other thing, there are, you know, it's just a spider web that goes out from this. But people have tried to then rationalize, well, how did we get this love? What is the basis of this love? And it kind of breaks down into two predominant camps. And there's, again, as many webs as there is, there are also as many names as these are, and some of these names are good, and then some of them have practically become cuss words toward the two different groups. But amongst believers, we have tried to logically and intellectually come to grips with this idea of, love, of God loving us and choosing us and predetermining whether or not we would be with him forever in that love before the foundations of the world. The first kind of school of thought on this is what we would call that they would say that they believe in um, election, but it's conditional election. That God, yes, that he, he elected you before the foundations of the earth. But this election was based on a condition. And that condition was not God. That condition was you. They would get inside of this kind of theology or doctrine that God, before the foundations of the earth, would, would play out your life before him in this grand movie that is your life. And that he would look out into the distant future, and if God gives you 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, he would pan out your entire existence, and he would go to and fro looking to see if you ever accepted and received his gift of salvation. In you choosing God and his grace, God looks at that in the future, then goes back before the foundations of the earth and says, based on the condition of them choosing me, I will now choose them, I will now elect them, I will now predestine them based on what I can see them doing in their future. This is foreseen faith. This means that people are only saved because one day out in their future, they finally choose God. And therefore, based on what man does, God then ordains something. He ordains salvation. He ordains election. He, again, knows that this is going to happen. What you have to wonder about that mentality, though, if that is what God does, is what's different about those few folks that actually choose God than those who don't? You have to ask the question, well, they, are they smarter than the rest of us? Are they smarter than us? 
God has, he has extended grace and mercy to everyone on the planet. He is, he, Jesus, he, he's died upon the cross. He is merely waiting for, for you and I and all the rest of humanity to receive this gift and to take upon this gift. And yet, I mean, let's face it, there are people who, who are accepting it and there are people who are not accepting it. So we must wonder, those who accept it, they just must be a little bit smarter than a lot of the world. Or maybe they're just a little bit more righteous. They're just a little bit better than you are or than I am. And so God looked down through history and he saw smart people who could make really good choices or, or he saw really good people who could make really righteous choices and then based on their decision and their choice has forever elected you before the foundations of the world. These are conditions. This means that from this perspective that election is conditional. And you've met them. You have met the conditions. And so therefore, God saves you. He chooses you. He predestines you. Okay? Now, on the flip side of that, there is a second view called the unconditional election. What is the unconditional election? An unconditional election is that God is independent and makes choices independently of man. That God being God, as the Bible says, simply can do as he pleases. That he does not need man's coercion, that he does not need man's help, but that God is God, and because God is God, because he is creator, because he is perfect, because he is just, because he is love, because of all of those things, then God can simply make decisions on his own. He makes the independent choice. And what's interesting, if you look inside the book of Ephesians where it says that God has chose us or that God has predestined us, in the Greek it is in what's called the aorist tense. The aorist tense means it is independent of all other people. That God doesn't need you in order to make decisions. That God can simply make decisions. It does not say in this scripture that this salvation and being chosen and election and predestination and all these things is based on a condition that you and I meet. No, the idea that we see inside of scripture that it is completely unconditional. That if there were requirements, brothers and sisters, that guess what? You and I could not meet them. But you know who can? God can. Jesus can. And so I believe in what's called unconditional, conditional election. It is unconditional on you and I. We could not achieve it, but it is conditional on the person and work of Jesus solely. And so if you want to stand before God and try to impress him with big fat words, as you say this, you say, God, it was because of your unconditional election that you or chose before the foundations of the earth to elect that Jesus Christ would come in partnership to accept all the conditions that you would have for me. If you're from Bowling Green, you know what you should say? God, you did it. You did it all. Jesus didn't pay some of it. 
Jesus paid every bit of it. See, what we need to have to understand, brothers and sisters, is before, I wish we had time to just share our conversion stories that we could share with each other. When you came to Jesus, we get inside the scripture, we see this idea of Lord Jesus returned us the joy of our salvation. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that week? Do you remember maybe that season in your life when Jesus saved you and the joy of that? Well, brothers and sisters, what you need to understand is, is that there was something that was happening before the foundations of the earth that was going to make sure that that day, that season, that week happened. And one of those things is this idea is before the foundations of the world that God elected you, that he chose you. Then, infinitely then, and on the day of your conversion, there was probably somebody, and it could be in the season, all these sorts of things. I don't know what happened in yours, but you began to hear the gospel from people. And some of you have heard the gospel a bazillion times, and it never seemed to take. But on that day, in that week, in that season, for whatever reason, and we know it, God did it. He called to you not just in a general way, but he called to you in a very specific way. He was saying your name. Ladies, he was calling out your name. Like a husband who finds a wife, the Bible tells us that that is a good and precious gift. God, Jesus, the bridegroom, seeks out his bride, and he summons her like a tractor beam. He calls her or him to himself. From that gospel call, what happens? Regeneration. You grew up like I did in a Pentecostal church. We never heard the words regeneration. We call it being born again. All right? That's when you wipe the sweat from your brow. You grab your pant leg. Usually somebody who weighs about, I don't know, 600 pounds, who can't drink or smoke but eats lots of cheeseburgers, is waving at you saying, you need to get born again. You know the fallacy of that statement? You can't get it. It's got to be given to you. Regeneration, being born again, isn't something that you can create. And brothers and sisters, it's football season. John 3.16 will be in the stands somewhere tonight. And we love that passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But John 3.16 is absolutely beautiful. But you've got to know the first 16 verses before you can ever get to the 16th. Because what happens in the first 16 is Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Nick at night, right? And, and, and Nicodemus is scared to come to Jesus during the day, so Nick comes at night. He's having this conversation with Jesus, and Jesus begins to tell him, how does a man get saved? And, 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 and Jesus tell, or, or Nicodemus asks the question, and Jesus tells him, right, you, you've got to be born again. Well, then Nicodemus asks a great question. How could a man who's born... Get back in the womb and then be born again. Let's just let that rest. You can't. You can't. How does a person get born again? The, Jesus tells Nicodemus before verse 16, 
You can't do it. It is like the Holy Spirit is like a wind, and it travels to and fro, and it pretty much, and this is Eric, it's ESV, Eric Standard Version, it pretty much lands on whom God wants it to land. This is the process of being born again, regenerated. So before the foundations of the earth, I almost brought the whiteboard. Y'all better be glad I didn't. So before the foundations of the earth, God says, Chris Dendy is mine. Thousands of years go by. Chris Dendy is, is born in, in Texas or New Mexico? In Texas, grows up in New Mexico, right? Becomes a, a believer in, in, a, in, in a situation that would be odd. I mean, he didn't grow up in this uber First Baptist Church family experience, and so in this experience, God has done something for the foundations of the earth. Chris Dindy begins to hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel, hear the gospel. But on, for some reason, that on a particular day, he is awakened. He is born again. This is now called conversion. That being born again leads to conversion. And you know what happens at conversion? That's repentance and faith. But it always follows being born again. You saying, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I was a sinner. You'll be Lord of my life. Amen. Hallelujah. All right? Nothing wrong with that, in generally speaking. But that prayer does not make you born again. Being born again, which is because you have been elected, will eventually lead you to a place of going, I am nothing without you, God. I'm a dead man walking. I'm a wretch without God. Compared to your glory and who I am, I am absolutely nothing. I place my trust, because you know what born-again people will do? Place their trust in Jesus. Don't get the order out of whack. The only reason you came to saving faith, the only reason why you walked the aisle, because haven't you ever asked the question, what if sinner Adam back here decides he wants to become a Christian and at the end, I say, all right, come to the altar. Did y'all not just hear the sermon? Come to the altar. Adam hasn't heard a lick of what I've said this entire time. But he knows that God is, and the Holy Spirit is working inside of his heart. And so he's just waiting for this moment in the service for me to come to the altar. And so Adam bravely stands up at the end. He begins to walk the aisle. Todd, being a jerk, trips. He falls. Adam dies and busts his head right open right there without ever getting up to the magic carpet ride. Well, where does he go? Well, if it's based on a prayer, he's living on one. I like that. Well, it's lost then. But you know what could be, could be, happening inside of him? God could have just brought him to life. And then being brought to life, it's not, again, a condition that we meet, but it's a condition that Jesus has met. And he met that on the cross. And so there can be confidence in this idea of being unconditional. Paul says this is done by the will of God. In 2 Timothy 1, 9, it says, who saved us and called us to holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
So he's telling us, man, salvation is, is not based on this foreseen ability to repeat a prayer or to say, I repent of my sin. No, that's not what the Bible says. Those would be works, and yet the Bible clearly teaches us that you're not saved by your works. You're called not because of your works, but because of his own purpose of grace. That's where you amen. We'll learn. All right? That's good news. Because if it is works that saves us, brothers and sisters, it must be works that keeps us saved. And that's not the gospel. In Romans chapter 9, verse 11, let's flip there. Wish I had time to read all this, but I don't. Let's begin reading verse, chapter 9, verse 6. But it's not as though God, through the word of God, has failed. For not all those who are descended from Israel be, belong to Israel, not all the children of Abraham, because uh, they are of his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About that time when the next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. And this is verse 11, what I want you to get. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls? She was told the other shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So before the foundations of the earth, God has predetermined, one day I'm going to do it outside of the order. There's this guy named Esau. He will be the older brother. But Jacob will, will be given the birthright. He will carry on the promise. And it's not based on their works, but it is completely based on the Lord. And what's interesting about this is, again, we want to get really worked up about it. Only on certain times. We can, we can see this illustrated by Jesus. Again, you didn't, do not think, brothers, that you've chosen me, but I have chosen you. In, in 1 John, what do we get? It's not that we have loved God first, but it's that he has loved us first. I mean, have you ever thought about this? When when, when Jesus is, is healing the man at the pool, do you guys know this story? Got a man, sick, bunch of sick people all around the pool, all right? Not, not a concrete swimming pool, pond, all right? There was beliefs that um, you could, you know, dip yourselves in it and get healed from, from this water and this sort of thing. So Jesus shows up on the scene. He walks next to this pond. There's tons of sick people all the way around this pond. And notice what Jesus does. He passes over certain sick people to heal one. Would you in that moment say that God is unloving? Would you in that moment say that God is unfair? Jesus could have saved every one of those sitting in the pool or around the pool. He uses to save one. Would you say that God is unmerciful? Would you say that this is not right? But this was the will of God. 
Have you ever thought about this? In the story of Lazarus, you know, Lazarus, Jesus' best friend, he's put in the tomb. King James said he stinketh. Jesus waits pretty much three to four days to even show up on the scene of this guy. And he's been in there in a tomb, dead. Guess who else was in that tomb? A bunch of bones. A bunch of other dead folk. A bunch of other dead people. And yet when, when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's got a specific plan and a specific calling for a specific person inside there, and his name is Lazarus. And isn't it interesting, whenever Jesus says, come forth, there weren't a bunch of other bodies that were coming out of there. No, there, there was one, and no one around. We get no picture of all the other crowd who maybe even had family members inside that tomb freaking out that it was only Lazarus. But they were rejoicing. Lazarus is alive. I mean, people plotted to kill Lazarus and Jesus after this. Because, I mean, how do you stop a dead man who, who was dead for four days and now is walking back around your city? This says something about Jesus. It says something about God. It says something about his character. I want us to get this. Please understand, none of us are more righteous. None of us are more intellectual. The picture is, and I'm going to preach an entire sermon on this here in a couple weeks. I don't want to get too far deep into this, but imagine you traveling with me to the morgue today. If you go to the morgue, what do they hold at the morgue? Dead bodies. And everybody in the you know, library catalog of deadness, guess what everybody inside of that catalog is? They're all equally dead. So God shows up on the scene to dead people, dead, people dead in their sin. And he makes what he chose before the foundation of the earth. He makes it happen in that moment. Can you imagine laying there dead, taking your first breath? Looking in the eyes of Jesus. This is the picture of what God has done in the past, but then how it does have things that happen in the here and the now. See, salvation is a miracle, the ultimate miracle. And if we have done something to cause it to happen, then you know what that does? It lessens the miraculous of it. It means that you and, the God, you and God and you, you have a great partnership with God and that you guys work together to make this happen. And yet, brothers and sisters, that is not what we see in the Scripture. We do not see the picture of you working with God and you guys coming to an agreement and signing it into action. No, what we see is, is a bunch of enemies of God, dead people of God, um, people who are far from God, but God for seeing, for choosing, for knowing, for loving, for being intimate with in eternity's past and saying, I'm going to make sure that some of these people, that they come to me. Salvation is a miracle, greatest miracle. May we not dampen or lessen it by thinking that we had something to do with it. This means that salvation is, again, not...
based on us, but it is based on God. It is based on His love and His character for His people. You go from being in your sin, being unable to even choose or seek God, to being made able to seek God. See, you would never cry out, I'm a sinner. I'm a, and you get this picture inside the scripture, them ripping their clothes, throwing ash all over them as a, a symbol of grief in their sin. You will never come to that moment really without God doing something behind the veil. And Paul unveils the veiling for us. See what's happening. So, for ease. Some of these I will blow through because we will come back to them. How do we respond to this? What is the response? The first one is what I'm calling epiphany. If you look inside most of your calendars, on January the 6th, it happens about six or seven days after Easter, there is a Christian celebration that has been added to the calendar, and it will just say the word epiphany. It's actually a Christian holiday. It's the celebration in certain sects of Christendom where they celebrate the idea of the magi, or the mad guys, uh, coming to Jesus in the celebration of his birth with the gifts. They were Gentiles. And there's a celebration, there's a religious holiday within Christendom called the Epiphany, or Epiphany, which is the celebration of essentially Jesus coming to the Gentiles. If you further, that's when it's capital E. If you further out that, that, that meaning, according to the dictionary, it means the appearance or manifestation, especially of a divine being. It means this, a usually sudden manifestation or perception of the essential nature or meaning of something. It's an intuitive grasp. It's of reality through something such as an event, usually simple and striking. It's an illuminating discovery. It's a realization. It's a disclosure. The last definition, it means this, revealing scene or moment. And a lot of times we'll be sitting there and something will come to us and we'll be like, aha, right? It's the, the whole light bulb in the cartoon. It's, I just had an epiphany. I mean, don't go eat coffee with, or drink coffee with people who just scream out things like that. It's kind of weird. But you get this picture of all of a sudden, I mean, how many of you guys have, have read Scripture before or you've known something, but for some reason on a specific day, it comes to you with newness? It's this, I've never noticed this before. It's an, it's an illuminating truth. It's illuminating factor. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know those, there are lots of people who claim to believe like what I'm preaching to us and what we believe here at Mission, and they have given us all a really, really bad name. Okay, I want to apologize on behalf of a lot of people that need to be locked into a cage when it comes to these things. But people who 
really get this, who really understand the nature and the beauty that in love he has chosen us, he has predestined us in his love to the counsel of his own will. I want you to understand this, that, that the reason why they can, we can go and become obnoxious is because we've had an epiphany of this great truth that has forever transformed every inch of our lives. And there is so much freedom and comfort and hope and security and assurance in believing these gospels truths that if you don't believe what I'm preaching you today that you cannot have and if you play out your beliefs to the fullest extent that means that you can lose gain gain lose lose gain your salvation and I want you to know that is no salvation at all God guarantees it in eternity's past if you're going to be saved guess what you will always be saved God has this many sheep and he declares and and, and makes assured that they will reach their final destination through Jesus and that is back to God. That's why we can be obnoxious about this. It's because we grieve. God is not sovereign. He is not God. God is not in control. Maybe you've not been through enough in your life yet. But it is is this truth that allows me to wake up every morning is entrusting of a God who, and it, it causes this epiphany. I've told this story and briefly. When I became a Christian, all I knew was what I was, I was raised growing up. I did not read the Bible or any of those sorts of things. When I became a Christian, people, I started reading the Bible. I changed my major to a religious studies major. I started reading the book of Ephesians because pretty much we just camped out on passages about the Holy Ghost um, in the church I grew up in. I started reading other books of the Bible. I started coming across words like chosen, elect, predestination, not from people, from the Bible. And I want you to know, it blew my mind. I became angry. I became hateful. I began to just really go, man, I don't think I know this God at all. And practically one night, or symbolically, it was almost like I went to bed just really wrestling in the tension. And God, in his mercy and grace, I woke up the next morning, and here's a synopsis of what I said. I said, God, here's the deal. You've saved me. I don't really understand all of that. Predestination, election, chosen, all these words are found in your Bible. I don't get them but I cannot deny them. Be patient with me and teach me. As God began to teach me again, epiphany after epiphany after epiphany, moment after moment through grief and through celebration have come back to the realization of how great and grand God is. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, he would say that, in in essence, paraphrased down, election chosen predestination, it is the gospel. Because you know what? If God was to look down the corridors of time and see the lives of people, he would never see anyone choose him. He would never see them do that. Why? Because of their sin. 
So Jesus would die and it would be completely pointless because it would not lead to anything. He would simply look down through bazillions of people in his creation, hoping, begging that someday when they would choose. And guess what? As he combed through all of our lives, he would never find a single person who would choose him. And so what's he do? He plans it out. He doesn't learn things. He knows things. This is who he is. This epiphany should lead to comfort in our lives. Number two, the second E is it encourages a pursuit of holiness. It encourages a pursuit of holiness. What does he tell us in verse four? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. People will try to come against this mentality and they'll say, well, you're just telling people as long as they say a prayer, they can live however they want to live. Do you know how counterproductive that is? Do you know what a disgrace that would be to say that to God? Because that's not what the Bible says. If he has chosen you, if he has predestined you, if he has elected you, then guess what? Then he has called you to something. Yes, positionally in Jesus, you're as holy as you're ever going to be. You're as blameless as you're ever going to be. And yet practically, as we live out our lives, he's called us to holiness. He has called us to that. John Stott, the great pastor, commentator, says, Far from encouraging sin, the doctrine of election forbids it and lays upon us instead the necessity of holiness. What is holiness? Set-apartness. Jesus says, you know, be holy for I am holy. It's this pursuit of of being more and more like God. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you need to get this 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 morning. You need to understand, I need to understand that there needs to be a pursuit of holiness that even Paul in his language, I'm I'm running this race, be a good soldier, be a good farmer, that there's this persistence in in pursuing the person and work of Jesus. This idea of just, man, I said my prayer, I got my fire insurance, and I'm good with God sort of life. You know what, that, that you should be scared to death today. If you're believing that some, you know, past experience, one day in your life and there's been no change. See, with your very lips, the very words that come out of your mouth, we should be pursuing holiness. He's going to get to that in the Bible, in Ephesians. Talking about coarse joking, cussing, these sorts of things things that we watch on, on television, the things that we do, the things that we eat, all of, all of these sorts of things. Again, I want you to understand this. We don't pursue holiness in hopes of getting saved. No, we can, because we've had this epiphany of what God has done, then we compare, man, what we've done to what God has done, and I've done absolutely nothing. But look at what God has done. And so therefore, with all of my life, every moment of time, I'm all in. I've written a blank check to Jesus. I've written a blank check to my wife, to my kids. I've written a blank check to my my church. I'm not going to sit by bench warm. No, I'm in this. Why? Because look at what he has done. He has gone to the fullest extent of his glory to confirm and make sure that salvation happens for his people. And so in turn, what can I do? Lord Jesus, help me to be more like you. Help me to be more loving, more merciful, more graceful, more forgiving. Help me to be slow to anger. Help me to be more a part of the church. Help me to press in instead of pushing away from the table. 
we pursue holiness. Because of time, I don't have time to read it. Write down Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And it talks all about this idea of being chosen, and yet we're chosen to pursue a life. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. We're to do this. The great commentator Matthew Henry, which probably every old man and old pastor has on his, on his, on his bookshelf, says, None can know their election but by their comforting conformity to Christ. For all that are chosen are chosen to sanctification. J.C. Ryle, election is always to sanctification. Those whom Christ chooses out of mankind, he chooses not only that they may be saved, but, but that they may bear fruit, and that this fruit can be seen. All election beside this is mere vain delusion and a miserable invention of man. See, God's election would never allow us to remain sinners, brothers and sisters. This is what I think is the greatest deception inside of America. This is what is preached often on pulpits, often tweeted about after every Sunday service. If God has chosen you, He has saved you, you will be set apart. You will be different. Your speech, your thoughts, your lives, your actions, your pursuits will be different. If we're not growing in holiness, then here's what we can be sure of. That our salvation is not real. I'm not talking this morning about perfectionism. There's only one perfect one. His name is Jesus. And he's making sure we get there. But I am talking about progress. Thomas Weekly, when he was at the, our meeting on Wednesday night, our Bible study, he was talking to us about two different types of people that you can often, um, even if you're a Christian, you can walk towards carnality. That means like being like the world. Or you have a tendency to walk toward religiosity, being really religious and legalistic. And here's, here's what I want you to understand about both of those circles that, that he drew for us, both those explanations. Carnality, I, I, would, I would press into that in this, this sense. A Christian who lives in carnality for all of their lives just illustrates they weren't a Christian. Because there, there is a transformation. The prodigal son comes home. Okay? And the same thing can be said about religiosity. That there is this, this coming back that God brings back his sheep. His sheep know him. They know his voice. Okay? Pursue holiness. This is not a, uh, you know, a license to licentiousness. Number three. So epiphany encourages a pursuit of holiness. Number three, eliminates boasting. It eliminates boasting. Paul's going to talk about this here in just uh, a few verses down, that no one can boast. Again, if you have something to do with your own salvation, then how can we all completely be worshiping God here today? We can be worshiping God and ourselves. And yet, he says he does this according to the counsel of his own will. This is for him and by him. The fourth E. 
It's actually three E's. Empowers and expects evangelism. It empowers and it expects evangelism. A lot of people, they will say, well, if God is predetermined who will be saved and who will be not, then why should we evangelism, evangelize people? Why should we share the gospel? Well, it's really simple. Because he says to do it. Thanks. Jonathan just dropped the mic for me. He says to do it. Again, what are we supposed to be pursuing? Holiness. Godliness. Obedience. This idea, I'm a Christian, I never obey Jesus. You're not a Christian. I love you. We share the gospel, and the reason why election empowers and expects evangelism, number one, he says to do it. So you do it. Number two, God is not only um, you know, predestined salvation, but he's also predestined the means of getting there. And how is the means of getting there? I mean, that's like asking the question, why did Jesus die on the cross? It was the means by which the conditions that were laid out by God, how were they going to be met? Through Jesus. That's the means. But also the means of how are these lost folk, how are the elect going to be awakened? Through you standing outside the morgue, crying to them at your workplace, at your neighbors, at Spencer's, wherever you're out, and saying, hey, God is calling some of you out. God's calling some of you out through Jesus in Christ. Trust Jesus. Repent of your sins. Turn to him. This is the expectation. And, 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 and not only this, this is the third thing. Not only is, is, is sharing the gospel important as obedience to God and also by a means of how that God is going to call someone, but get this, church. The reason why some of us are struggling discipleship in this church is because you're not sharing the gospel with people. Because God is going to sanctify your life and sharpen your life and work in the nitty-gritties of your life by you having stories of God working, but also lots of stories of people denying God's call. He's sanctifying you. He's working in your life. Epiphany encourages the pursuit of holiness, eliminates boasting, it empowers, expects evangelism. In Christian history, the missionary movement, as we know it, was done by men and women who believe what I'm talking to you about today. Greatest missionaries, especially if you're Southern Baptist, I mean, you name your kids after them, um, all believe this. They believe this. The guy who gets labeled for a lot of this is a guy named John Calvin, who never came up with Calvinism, by the way. And when he wrote the Institutes, the Institutes were never meant as a systematic theology to prove a bunch of people wrong. His Institutes were actually written pastorally to bring comfort and care to the people in his church. Guys later came up with Calvinism. The man who believes this and yet he preached every day in Geneva calling people to repent. 
Spurgeon believes this, and yet he said, let them trip over our bodies. Let us grab a hold of their ankles. If they're going to go to hell, let it be with us on their back. Missionary movement started most of the big ones that we know of from this perspective. See, I, I believe deep down, and I don't mean to be facetious here, but I deep down believe that Christians all believe this. Because I've never met a one of you who say, me and Jesus work together. You all say, Jesus saved me. Also, if you know a lost person, what do you pray? Do you pray, Lord, I know you've offered it to them. Make Brian Lewis smart enough to accept it. Make Jonathan smart enough to accept it. Make whoever's presenting it to them, make them sure that they're real good and crafty and woos them with charisma and emotionalism. Or do you pray, Jesus, save my friend? Because if you don't believe this, you shouldn't pray that. Because he can't. What you're saying is, is he's already offered it to him. But he cannot do anything about it. The election empowers, it expects evangelism because we know this, that Jesus came to do what? Seek and save the lost. He did not come as a, as a potential saving. He came to do it. It is a, it is finished. It's not, it is possible. No, it's, it is finished. It's a done deal. I am saving my people. I came to seek and to save the lost. First Thessalonians, I'm going to end on some scripture. First Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. You know what kind of men we, prov- we prove to be among you for your sake. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believe. Acts 18, 9 through 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Paul was kind of freaking out. He shows up to Corinth and no one is getting saved. So Paul is praying in Acts 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Listen to this. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. So you know what Paul does because of that? He stays a year and a half preaching and teaching, and the church at Corinth is birthed. After spending some time there, and nothing's happening. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. See, brothers and sisters, from what I believe to be the biblical perspective, that Jesus can really save anyone. Not just good, smart, righteous people. But because of these truths, as I think that Paul is singing here, it really illustrates God save. And we all believe that God has saved our mamas, if you had a good one. Believe today that God can save a man like David Nasser.
uses 150 girls plus. That's what we know. Think God can save a man like that? I do. Let's pray that he does. That God saved him. Not that David Nasser all of a sudden becomes smart enough or righteous enough. Because he is neither one of those things. God's grace is good enough. Maybe God, knowing all of this, has to get that man in prison. And then hears from a man whose ministry, Chuck Colson, who has a prison ministry. And he hears the gospel and changes his life. All the Father has given me. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to come to Him. So let us rejoice. Let us worship Jesus. The praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You.